I got my first pair of eyeglasses when I was three years old. It had become clear to my family and to our pediatrician that my vision needed a boost. And so eyeglasses became a part of my life from very early on. And so did regular visits to the optometrist. I haven't worn glasses for many years now, so I actually don't really know what it's like to visit an optometrist these days. But when I was a child, going to the eye doctor was quite exciting, I thought. I remember Dr. Shapiro's office in Minneapolis very well, particularly the examination room. He would have me sit on a chair at one end, facing the other end with a brightly lit chart with letters in varying sizes. And then he'd swing this enormous heavy contraption uh, in front of my face. It was sort of like a giant metal mask with two panels and a hole for each eye. And then he would swing his chair up next to me and he would click through a number of panes of glass for each eye. There were always two and it was always my job to say which one was clearer. One, he'd say, putting one option in front of my eyes and then quickly changing to another, or two. Two, I would say. Okay, he'd respond. How about now? One or two? One, I would say. Maybe this is all still how the visit to the eye doctor goes. I, I don't know. But I didn't mind going at all back then. It was fun looking through that giant metal mask. And somehow by the end of five minutes of one or two, we'd end up with something that really made the letters at the other end of the room pop into focus for me, clear and crisp. He would pass my mother a little piece of paper with a prescription on it, and we'd be off to go buy a new set of lenses. I was reminded of those long-ago visits this past week by a commentary I read on our passage from 1 Corinthians, and I'll come back to that in a moment. We have been slowly working our way through this letter for the past three Sundays, following Paul as he greeted the community with lavish words of appreciation and then began to address some of the concerns this particular group of people brought together by the gospel were facing. They're a diverse gathering, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, male and female, slave and free, from prominent families and from common ones. And as one might imagine, they're bringing all sorts of familiar patterns with them, divisions and hierarchies and struggles for influence with them into the church. This won't do. Paul said, because a community gathered around Christ is different. A community gathered around the word of the cross, the word that God chose what is foolish, weak, low, and despised in the world, a community gathered around that particular word will be strange. It will flatten the old hierarchies. It will topple the old divisions. It will seek a new way, witnessing to the strange and gracious way that God comes among us. So our reading today picks up there, and in it Paul reflects in his early days with the church in Corinth, years ago when he was helping to get things started. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, he writes, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. It's kind of a strange thing to say, but as we saw last week, the gospel leads to all sorts of strange places. This particular statement is strange because, well, Paul is very much rejecting the customs of his time. The Greco-Roman world of the first century was very big on lofty words and wisdom. 
Maybe most cultures are pretty into those things to some degree. But we are talking here about a time and place where professional orators, people whose job it was to speak loftily and well about matters of importance, were treated as celebrities. If you had an argument to make or a new theory to share, the expectation was that you would speak about it at length using complex rhetorical strategies and a polished style of presentation, demonstrating your credentials, your qualifications, demonstrating your wisdom. The Corinthians knew about all these sorts of expectations. It was part of their culture. Paul came with a new message to share, the mystery of God, he calls it, but he didn't treat it in that familiar, polished way. No, he says, he came with weakness and fear and trembling without plausible words of wisdom. We don't know exactly what that must have looked or sounded like, but it's clear that Paul spoke in a way that would have looked pretty humble compared to the skills of a Roman orator. It's a strange thing to do, but again, it's a strange message he had to share. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, he says. Paul is reminding the Corinthians of the core message of the gospel here. He's taking them back to the proclamation that gripped them in the beginning, the word that formed their community. He's reminding them of what was at the center then and what must remain at the center now. Remember, he says, you're fighting about which teacher you like best, but it was never about the teacher. It was never about how smart or polished or eloquent I was. It was always about how faithful God is. You're fighting about who has privileged place in the community, but it was never about creating a new ladder. It was never about who's above who. It was always about God who has come down to us. You're fighting about who has the deepest wisdom, but it was never about being wise by common standards. It was never about our intelligence. It was always about the true wisdom of God, wisdom that for all the world looks like foolishness. Remember, at the center there always was and there always will be one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Here's where those visits to the eye doctor come in. In a commentary on this passage, New Testament scholar Mary Hinkle Shore says that Jesus Christ and him crucified is really the lens that Paul uses to make sense of everything else. It's not the answer to every question for him, but it's the window through which the answers become visible. It's not the doctor's eye chart, but it's the piece of glass that makes the chart come into focus. You are looking through lens number one, Paul says, the familiar one, where life is about securing a place for yourself, grabbing all the honor and esteem and possessions and influence you can muster, where it's all restless climbing, trying to pull yourself up. You need to look through lens number two, the cross-shaped one, to make sense of the new thing God is doing. Because through that lens, it's clear that all that old grabbing, all that old climbing is meaningless. Through the lens of the cross, God has shown what really matters, laying down our weapons, including those left out, setting a bigger table, standing together in love. It's no wonder your community is a foggy, blurry mess, Paul says to the Corinthians. You are looking through the wrong set of lenses. You need to look through the lens of the cross. Only then will things come into focus. 
Lutherans sometimes talk about a theology of the cross, and I think it really means basically this, allowing the picture of God that we find here, a God who is unarmed, empty-handed, dying out of love for the world and its people, to be at the center for us, making the cross the lens we look through to make sense of the world. The truth is we don't always want a God like that. We often want one who shares our grudges, not one who keeps talking about forgiveness. We want one who gives us definite answers, not one who keeps asking us questions. We want one who acts swiftly and forcefully, not one armed only with mercy. But in Jesus, the God on the cross is the one that we get. And Paul would remind us that this is finally the God that we need. So the invitation then, or the calling really, is to try looking at more of your life through the lens of the cross. To look at your family, your friendships, your neighborhood, your society, our congregation, through God's self-giving love in Jesus. How might those parts of your life look different when you remember that at the heart of things is a God who doesn't seek to overpower, but to include? who doesn't sit in the privileged place but with those left out, who doesn't draw distinctions but sets a wider table, who doesn't change the world with force but with love. What might look different through that lens? What old patterns might it call into question? What might you do differently in response? My optometrist analogy does break down here because I can't promise that the lens of the cross will actually make everything in life come into crystal clear focus. There will still be questions, there will still be doubts, there will still be uncertainties. But it's through this lens, Jesus Christ and him crucified, that I think we find our calling as individuals and as a community. It's through this lens that we keep discerning what matters and how we will live and the sort of community we will be. It's through this lens that God points us to the needs of our neighbors and to the world of justice and peace that God envisions. So take a look again, friends. The cross will point the way. Amen.